Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And in reality, I just love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Do you realize that this is episode number 53? That means we have a whole year's worth of content that you can get access to if you go to ibc.com under the podcast menu. Boy, what a year it has been, right? I mean, this global pandemic thing has amplified problematic events in our lives. People have massive career shifts, had to or chose to move. They know people who have died, felt the weird brain fog of being a career person and also a professional teacher to kids who are at home. We've had to deal with vaccine shortages or controversies. Not all of those problems happened for everyone, but globally, it has been a year. I know people who have flourished this year, but I also know people who are deeply, deeply tired. So I pulled a conversation out of our roundtable talk collection for us to think about. Dr. Yeshaya Gruber hosted a conversation with Dr. David Carr. He is an Old Testament professor at Union Theological Seminary. Dr. Carr has written several books, including one called Holy Resilience, The Bible's Traumatic Origins. Dr. Carr writes at the beginning of his book that the scriptures of Judaism and Christianity offer pictures of a God who is still present when life shatters to pieces, and he suggests that is a major reason why it has retained its relevance for thousands of years. I thought this might be a good thing for us to think about this week. So this episode is not going to be a conversation about how to deal with our collective experience through this COVID year, but it is going to touch on the trauma some of you might feel and relate it back to biblical interpretation and dating of text and composition of passages. And then Dr. Carr is going to help us think about how to understand how those texts talk about God. And the conversation quickly takes us directly into a personal story of trauma. Take a listen. It's a tricky thing, of course, talking about these kinds of things, because you don't want to make it sound as if um, trauma is good, um, you know, or people should somehow seek out trauma as if anyone would uh, to get closer to God. But I do think that when one lives a life that has no bumps in it, that does has no crises and that sort of thing, um, often a real deep encounter with God doesn't seem as necessary. Um, and and it's when one is brought up against one's mortality and the limits of life and life's randomness and that kind of thing that one starts asking life's bigger questions. And so um, I think. You know, I think that's that's been true for me at different points in my life. 
the book that you mentioned, Holy Resilience, came out of a what started as just this sort of very academic exercise where I was invited to give a paper and a panel on the role of exile in the development of biblical prophecy. And I was had been hearing about stuff about trauma and I thought, I should check this out more. I think this could be really interesting and presented a paper at this panel. And uh, that was great. And it was, uh, people gave me a good response and that was, I thought that was fine. And I was writing a book at the time on the formation of the Hebrew Bible that you mentioned at the outset. And so I linked this paper to that. And then seven months later, my wife and I were uh, up in the Catskill Mountains of New York celebrating our 10th anniversary on a bike ride. We're avid cyclists. And uh, we were going downhill at a relatively high speed on a country road. And for unknown reasons, my bike broke beneath me. And um, I fell at high speed and uh, broke basically my entire left chest. And I don't want to go too much into detail just because sometimes my discussion of this this process can be triggering for people um, who listen to this because everybody comes to these sorts of things with their own history. But what this did for me is it, um, I, I don't actually remember the accident itself, but I suddenly was confronted with my own traumatic experience, my individual traumatic experience. And what was an academic exercise became existential. And I not only sort of learned the um, ways in which trauma can impact somebody in terms of pain and suffering and loss of memory. But I also gained a new understanding of how the struggle back from trauma involves a learning to trust in one's survival and and being able to embrace that and sort of chart a new course on the other side of the trauma. And back to your question, I think, you know, insofar as other people go through this process, with their own events, whatever it is for them. And trauma is a very individual journey for people. What's traumatic to one person is deeply suffering for another, but not traumatic. But when people do, they have to make these sort of fundamental decisions where you're not just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, but you're you're really fundamentally reevaluating where things are. And that's what happened for me with that incident. And suddenly, I found myself really writing a whole different project than I'd originally envisioned for myself at that stage in my career. Dr. Carr continues to talk about how his own near-death experience changed the way he processed or thought about the near-death experience of the nation of Israel in the Babylonian exile. But did you hear what he said about memory? Trauma can sharpen memory by stripping away peripheral things, but it can also cause inaccurate memories. Dr. Gruber asked a really interesting question about how we can speak about truth that is expressed to a memory that may or may not be accurate. It relates to the Bible in some interesting ways. The thing it reminds me of is some studies of trauma. Um, survivors of the Nazi de- death camps talking in with great certainty and detail about how many chimneys they remembered seeing. <clears throat> in some of those camps. And and then, you know, researchers going back to those camps and, you know, archaeologically reconstructing them and finding that, in fact, they had a different number of chimneys. You know, it's just simply in terms of actual verifiable reality. At the same time, there was a certain currency to that memory for that person that was profound and very important. It was important to to the person talking to talk about that detail. 
And so that sort of raises, I think, different forms of truth that people have when they tell their story. And um, as a survivor of trauma tells their story and about various kinds of details, uh, some of those details are will, will be things you could have recorded with a video camera if you'd been there, and others may not be. At the same time, there's another sort of truth that's being conveyed by that survivor that's not easily captured on video. And that starts to get us into, you know, so what sort of truth is being conveyed? What is important in that story? Because telling story has been proven to be really important to people's recovery process, both communities and individuals. And it often is, it's a complex thing. Um, and I would argue the same is somewhat true of the Bible, that at least within the Christian circles that I um, am more familiar with, there's often a big debate about whether the Bible is historically accurate on this or that or the other point. As if if you went back with a video, you could capture each detail exactly correctly. Whereas I would argue a lot of the the truth of the Bible really isn't the kind of thing one would find in verifying that something happened in a way that sort of matches our current ideas of history. It's these deeper truths that are being conveyed by the community over time. It's a deeper music um, in the Bible that people who've gone through trauma, whether communities or individuals, can hear. There's, there's, their ears are sort of tuned onto that level of frequency, and it's a different kind of truth. And it's not often easily um, encompassed in a simple propositional statement that like, okay, this is the point. It's something something else. And I, that was something I tried to get at some with my book. But I think in some ways, I'm just trying to say that part of the power of the Bible and the thing that made it survive where many much more famous literatures of its time died out is that sort of deeper music, that other form of memory that's not accurate in a modern style historical way, but is profoundly accurate to the experience of trauma in a different way. What's interesting to me is that the texts that really form the core of the present Hebrew Bible, the Torah and the prophets, are different. The Torah, you know, focusing on a, a landless people, patriarchs living in a foreign land, people wandering in the wilderness, receiving their their divine chosenness and law far from their eventual capital city. And also the Torah and describing the people as stiff-necked and stubborn and rebelling and building a golden cabin and stuff, that kind of thing is really unusual in the ancient Near East. And the same also for uh, the prophets with their strong focus on judgment, on trying to tell the community why and how it was going to experience a catastrophe like it had never experienced before, but also then talking about hope on the other side. These sorts of texts are what I would describe as texts that have been profoundly shaped by uh, an experience of trauma. And that helps explain their distinct character compared to other ancient Near Eastern libraries that were primarily composed of royal hymns and um, celebratory stories about the empire and um, love songs and those sorts of things. Now, this is interesting, and I don't know where you land when it comes to history or inspiration of scripture. 
And in the roundtable talk, Dr. Gruber and Dr. Carr talk through some theories of the history of writing and editing the biblical text. If you want to dig into that and really geek out about some of that historical data, you can find this conversation on the Israel Bible Center webpage under the roundtable talk menu. I want to jump to a different part of the conversation and to a suggestion that Dr. Carr makes that the trauma of exile shaped the Israelite belief in monotheism, and the process started with the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea is so central in so many different ways. Um, One of them is that he's an 8th century prophet from the northern state of Israel. We actually have no other, clearly, eight northern prophet um, from that period. So he's speaking in a state of Israel, the northern kingdom, that's about to be wiped off the face of the earth by the Assyrian Empire. And he's trying to help his people understand and come to terms with what's happening uh, to them. And it's in the midst of that experience that he becomes our first clearly datable witness to the idea that Israel should worship one and only one God, um, the, the, um, the Lord. And so that's important, I think, that we see sort of the birth of datable birth of monolatry, of the idea that you can worship one and only one God in the, in the midst of that kind of experience of trauma. And even though the Northern Kingdom was destroyed, his writing seems to have been preserved and is taken south um, and becomes important to Judeans in the southern kingdom based in Jerusalem as they undergo their own experiences of oppression, first under Assyria and then later under Babylonia. Um, and so even though the country that he speaks of ends up dying in many ways, it lives on in a new Israel, the kingdom of Judah, um, and becomes the foundation for an eventual belief um, in monotheism that emerges most clearly during the Babylonian exile. The biblical texts almost never, almost never speak directly about life in the exile. And they and we see almost no biblical text like prophet figures who are identified as speaking in the heart of the exile explicitly. You have Jeremiah and Ezekiel toward the very outset of the exile in the first few years, Ezekiel in Babylonia, Jeremiah in Jerusalem. But otherwise, we don't have, we have a group of prophets like Isaiah and Hosea, Micah, and so on, who are identified as being part of the pre-exilic period. And you have other prophets like Haggai and Zechariah who are identified in the post-exilic period. And, And there's this difference. So that's all true. That said, I still think there's lots of really good evidence that there was plenty of writing going on in the exile. It's just that they weren't able to write directly about their experience uh, that much. Um, And one good example of this pertains to this issue of monotheism, this uh, prophet, second Isaiah, which this is one of those scholarly theories that has stood the test of time. It was already proposed in the 1700s, solidified in the 1800s, the idea that chapters 40 to 55 of Isaiah, possibly some materials in 56 to 66, come from prophetic figures or a prophetic figure speaking out of the experience of Babylonian exile, who names the Persian king Cyrus by name, 
speaks of various realities of the exile and tries to process pre-exilic prophecies in relation to that experience. And so all that data has been strong enough that ordinary biblical scholars that disagree with each other about almost everything else have generally agreed that you can identify an exilic writing that doesn't identify itself as such in these chapters of Isaiah. And these chapters are one of the clearer bits of evidence we have for this idea that not only should Israel worship one and only one God, but the idea that anybody else's God is a false God. And you see in the second Isaiah, there's these parodies of Mesopotamian gods and idols and that sort of thing, and ridiculing them as false. And so that's not our only bit of data, but it's an example of a pretty clearly datable exilic writing that doesn't proclaim itself as such. And, and yet at the same time speaks of monotheism as we now define it. I would like to leave you with a quote from Dr. Carr's book. If the Bible were a person, it would be a person bearing the scars, plated, broken bones, muscle tears, and other wounds of prolonged suffering. A person whose identity was profoundly shaped by trauma. Okay, this begs one more final question. Dr. Gruber closed out their conversation by asking if someone has to relate to the experience of trauma to understand what is being conveyed in a book that was partially shaped by trauma. I guess one of the things I would want to say is there's so many facets and aspects to the Bible. Just because somebody does not have a personal experience with trauma or something they'd label as such, doesn't mean they won't find many deep and profound things to connect to in the Bible. That said, my experience, having talked about this with various groups and individuals over time, is that even for people who personally have not experienced trauma, they've been a part of a community or they have a loved one who has. And it's out of, out of that kind of experience, they almost always have some kind of touchstone by which they can then connect with those parts of the Bible that seem to be speaking out of that experience. I'm so glad you were here with us today. Next week, we pursue a similar theme, but with a different guest as we explore the concepts of Jewish identity. Our guest has a fascinating and complicated background, which gives him a unique perspective on the formation of Jewish identity and of Jewish and Christian relations. If you want to join a whole online community taking a new look at the Bible, you are most welcome to join our community at israelbiblecenter.com. And there you will get access to the full roundtable talk that we only just heard a portion of today. This talk is called Trauma and Biblical Origins. I'll put a link in the show notes. But you also have access to a large collection of courses that you can combine together to earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds that you hear. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.